This is the future. And humanity is all but extinct. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages. Then they begin touching. I volunteer as tribute! You can stop this. You can change things. I know that there's something more. Then we've only got one choice. We fight. Fight the future with Dan and Paul. Welcome to Fight the Future with Dan and Paul. I'm Dan. And I'm Paul. Today we have a very special guest, my friend Abby. Hello. I'm very excited to introduce you to Abby Paul. This is my very good friend from Boston. And she's a horseback jumper, right? Show jumper? Yeah. It sounds like you jumped onto horseback. It's like, wow, that's really impressive how you jump all the way up there onto the horse's back. Good job. <laughs> and she does aerial ribbons with fabric, which uh, is amazing. So I do aerial uh, hoop or weera now. Fancy. So she's suspended basically in the air with only her own muscles way up above everything. It's kind of amazing. And also fencing. She's actually a scientist, but these are all the things I once told her that... Uh, you're the person who most reminds me of Wesley from The Princess Bride. <laughs> yes, life goals achieved. Nice. <laughs> I'm just imagining like horseback riding in midair while fencing. That would make an excellent like uh, black velvet painting or something. Yes, also like an excellent gif on Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you are passionate about the Hunger Games series too as well. I am. I am a fan of the book series, though I haven't reread them in a bit, as well as a fan of the movies. Right now, I'm going to say spoilers for all Hunger Games things everywhere. All the from now on. All the Hunger Games. Everything yes. is on the table. Each game will be spoiled. And uh, how did you come to the Hunger Games series? So I read the first Hunger Games book slightly before the first movie came out. And I was walking around whatever city I was in at the time with the book in front of me, like, blissfully unaware of everything going on around me. And I don't know how I didn't get hit by a car because I crossed several streets while reading. <laughs> so you're um, holding the book in front of your face. Yes. <laughs> it was probably a bad plan. <laughs> There's, and we don't encounter that many books that do that for us, do we, in, in later years? After our teen years, it's harder to find those books, right? Especially once you start having, like, big life commitments. Yeah. Like 50 hour a week plus jobs and partners that want your time mm -hmm. and like other commitments that require you being a person and needing to devote yourself to things other than books. It's terrible, isn't it? I know. It's pretty awful. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk about the setting. We'll talk about plausibility, scariness, hope for the future and how would we do as we do for everyone. All right. We've scaled back on our sequels. You'll notice that we're not doing Scorch Trials, and we're almost certainly not going to do Allegiant. And that's because I don't want to watch those movies. That's fair. <laughs> but I do love The Hunger Games. But covering a sequel lets us dive into what new aspects of the world that are revealed, and also with a brand new perspective from our guest, Abby. The setting. The Hunger Games has kind of, like, the way it kind of snuck up on people to sort of evolve from cool sci-fi 
to the these last movies if it wasn't for you know there's sort of like the hover ships flying around and stuff but there's hardly any actual like cool sci-fi stuff that happens in this this could just be sort of an alternate history rebellion movie with people that look kind of funny you still have the capital folks that look like the capital and we have the rebels who are living underground in the horrible kind of catwalk concrete bunker areas yeah and i feel like that's the i mean major setting for uh mockingjay and it's especially a major setting that you don't see at all before yeah so katniss has been saved from two different arenas now and saved from district 12 which has been nuked not nuked but just firebombed i think yeah has been utterly destroyed and so she's now in this hitherto unknown district 13 which has been surviving for the last 75 years, uh, totally unknown. And we have these two settings of the capital and District 13, and they're at war. So it's a setting of constant warfare. Yes. Right, yeah. And I mean, there's, and there's an aspect of sort of the contrast there. In the Hunger Games, you know, while the Katniss and the rest of the tributes are running around in sort of chaos, it actually is very tightly controlled by the game master and the, the people running the whole thing. Whereas now, everything, you know, things, it's completely off the table in terms of what, what could happen. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the settings is the booby-trapped capital that has been evacuated, I believe, mostly evacuated. As the rebels try to push into the city, they're in this kind of hellscape of horrible booby traps that are designed to create fear and just incredible harm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting how... Finnick says, as they enter the capital, welcome to the 76th annual Hunger Games, because that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. The, all of the pods, all of the booby traps are designed by game makers. Um, right. They're being plunged back into the arena, and a large number of the people in Katniss's squadron are former tributes, because... There's Finnick, there's Peta, and there's Katniss herself. And it shows you something about the world of the Hunger Games and Pan Am that they put such a high premium on devising evil traps. Like, obviously, there's a whole class of society that is dedicated to this and breeding more and more bright young minds to create evil traps for the arena and also then for the real world. The level of creativity that goes into that, like, is commendable. But also, oh, God. (laughs) When you've created an industry out of the entertainment of death, that's really horribly depressing. But at the same time, they've created a massive number of innovations through this industry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how to make AI for machine guns that will target you everywhere. And I mean, think about the, um, the mutts. Like, that is like supreme genetic engineering that has largely been engineered for the arena. Right, just to create monsters for people's entertainment. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the most futuristic things, too, is the genetic engineering abilities, which we saw in the first movie, too. Mm -hmm. So what about District 13? I mean, what's so interesting about District 13 is we've seen District 12, obviously, where Katniss comes from, which is largely the sort of, not farming, but sort of subsistence, very low... Subsistence mining community. And we've seen the capital, which is this incredibly decadent, uh, ridiculously overblown in every aspect kind of society. 
And so now we have District 13 is sort of the, the only other district that we've really gotten a good look at. In some ways, it seems it's probably like an, uh, a deliberate rejection of everything that the capital stands for. It's all very gray. Everyone kind of wears the same outfits and it sort of has this military precision to it. I think of District 13 as both extremely similar to the capital at the same time as it is its polar opposite. Because the capital is almost uniform in its desire to be overblown. Mm -hmm. Like everything must be elaborate and garish. Whereas in District 13, everything must be extremely uniform and gray. So (laughs) you have the same kind of uniformity. It's just at different ends of the spectrum. And I feel like, especially as you get towards the end of the movie and you realize that coin really is an early snow, you see that kind of, there is a very similar culture. Mm, Of control. Yeah. Like you have very similar things that just appear different. Superficially, uh, the capital resembles our world more closely with this surface level freedom of self-expression and individuality. Whereas the District 13 is more like a traditional dystopia where everybody has to wear the same clothes. Like you receive a schedule in the morning that says exactly what your jobs are that day. And it's all under the guise of militarism. Yeah, District 13 is frankly pretty Orwellian. Yeah, but it's like we've survived. And this is all necessary for survival. You've created a dystopia that is viewed by people in the districts as a utopia as a result of their former oppression, Mm -hmm. which I think is an extremely interesting concept. Yeah, it's the promise of freedom and resistance versus actually being able to go outside, for example. And it's very interesting to me how District 13 is a mix of all the different districts. As there's a part in the movie where she says, we brought together all the districts. That in itself is already an achievement. But people come from very different experiences. Yeah, they do talk about how some of the like, you know, District 1 and 2 are staying mostly loyal to the capital over the course of the thing. Right. So fewer from District 1 in District 13. I, like I thought it was particularly interesting. Um, there's there's the 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 thing where uh, you know sort of when Katniss decides to help out the war effort and do the propaganda films and stuff. I I thought that was quite interesting the way you know she makes various demands of District Thirteen so that Peta won't be tried as a war criminal and all that kind of stuff for the things that he's being forced to say while he's a prisoner and that you know the coin goes yep yeah, okay. Uh, you know, after going back and forth a little bit, she finally agrees to doing it. And then what was unexpected to me was that she then goes out onto the balcony and tells the all the assembled members of District 13 exactly what the deal is. I mean, but my question there in regards to that is how much is that coin needing to show Katniss that it's a transparent government? Hmm. Hmm to assure her compliance as opposed to that actually being coin's approach to governing yeah that's a good point yeah that it might be there might be just kind of a show for katniss getting her to do the whole thing the other thing that i thought was about the setting was snow being actually not a very good military commander 
in a lot of ways. He's a very good manipulator and dealing with, you know, people one-on-one poisoning people or, you know, messing with Katniss's mind or whatever. But the actual, like, deploying of troops into different spots and countering the moves that the Resistance is making, he doesn't seem to actually be that good at it. Well, I mean, like, Snow has not had to engage in a military conflict before. He's always been able to manage everything on the small scale. I can manipulate individuals or kill Mm. off individuals who are inconvenient for me. So he's never needed to actually develop military skills. So yeah, this is a society that's been stable and free of military conflict for 75 years. Right. I mean, the the, the capital's military force is the peacekeepers, which are also just the police force. They don't have a separate military, or at least they don't seem to. Plausibility. I liked in this movie how... Like, I was thinking about Star Wars in contrast to this, where it's just a matter of, like, shooting guns at the other people and blowing them up and stuff. And this is very much focused on how war is about image and propaganda. Mm, Yes. Mm -hmm. And how, for the rebels to win, it's about them controlling the image of themselves, the image of Snow. And and Katniss is very much just a pawn in this, as Mm -hmm. the Mockingjay. Yeah. I feel like Katniss is being presented largely as the figurehead and leader of this revolution, but she really is very much just a pawn herself. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. She, she takes a lot of steps to not be a pawn, but that's certainly the role set out for her. Yeah. Including martyrdom. Exactly. There's a point where, to coin, her death would be more valuable than her staying alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As we've seen with District 13, they're sort of militaristic and everything is very rigid and stuff, and they don't really have a lot of room for uh, a lot of creativity in terms of their video production skills. And so we see a couple of the propaganda films as the thing goes on. I think they sort of, they get better as stuff goes on, but possibly slightly amateurish in comparison to the uh, the Capitals ones. Can, can we talk about Cressida for a moment? Since yes. we're talking about the propos. <laughs> I had mm. some slight feeling that you might uh, have a fondness for Cressida. Why, why would you think that? Why would you think that I would like really attractive filmmaker with an undercut and, and tattoos. I don't know. Why would you just... think that? <laughs> yeah, that actually, that whole part was super cool. The Like, I've literally done that job, like being a producer on set, obviously not in a war zone, but on trying to catch live stuff going on and being like, film that, film that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she's really one of the heroes of the revolution. Uh, they mm-hmm. managed to get someone to defect who was very skilled at this image making and hitting the right note. I mean, they didn't even get her to defect. She defected herself and then, like, found her way out. Yeah. She's from the capital, I think. She says, like, we weren't recruited. We came here ourselves. Ah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if not, then the District 13 videos might have looked like really rinky-dink or really cheesy, and they would have just been mocked in all the capital comedy programs, and it would have totally diffused the impact. Not even necessarily that, but I think it was Cressida's ability to capture Katniss in the moment yeah. that mm-hmm. got the really moving images. Mm-hmm. Was it believable that District 13 had all this military hardware, like full-out ships and bombs and guns and everything? Well, prior to the initial war, they were the military district. Ah, okay. 
That's where the guns were made. They were the nuclear district. That is why the capital was always afraid to wage a full-on assault on them, was because they had nuclear weapons. So why does that change in this movie, then? Because they are now finally actively being aggressors. But even then, even then, the capital only actually shells District 13 the once. Whereas uh-huh. District 13 is actively attacking capital uh, interests in every single district and the capital itself. Hmm. If you think about the number of offensive attacks on capital interests versus wow. the number of offensive in- attacks on District 13 interests, it is completely disproportionate. District 13 is always the aggressor. So District 13 actually has more planes and bombs and things. Like, I'm not sure that District 13 has more planes or bombs per se. I I know they definitely have a sufficient number. But what they do have that the capital does not have is nuclear weapons. Right. That doesn't come into play in Mockingjay. We sort of forget about that. They mention it in passing on occasion. There's an aspect of this sort of I the sort of mutually assured destruction that seems to have kept things in check. Katniss goes like, "Why didn't you you know, you have all these weapons? Why didn't you fire them at the Capitol?" And they're like, "Well, then we fire them at the Capitol and the Capitol retaliates and everybody dies." And not only were they not doing anything overt, they had were actually, you know, fading into legend in the rest of the districts because they were keeping such a low profile. The Capitol was content to presumably the capital was you know keeping a close eye on them but they were content to not actually be actively attacking them i think it was also that district 13 had armaments but not numbers Mm. Mm. they could not they did not actually have forces until they were able to unite the districts that's a great point yeah they would have had relatively small population right They had an extremely small population, especially because their population was affected by an epidemic. Exactly, yes. I mean, it's possible that if the the revolution hadn't happened and the capital just waited long enough, District 13 would have just naturally died out because they didn't have enough people to keep going. Maybe that's part of what sparked all this sudden activity, not just the emergence of Katniss as a hero, but desperation. I think it's a combination of desperation and the districts starting to rise up on their own. Yeah. So in terms of uh, plausibility, as we come down kind of the, the, the ending part of the, the movie where they're going into the capital, again, this seems this idea that it's not necessarily the most militarily sound strategy that Snow deploys, which is pulling everybody in as far as possible and setting up all these games still still almost sort of treating it like you know a hunger games or something where the entertainment factor still seems important to him as opposed to the actual winning i think it's implausible from our society where that is not what war is to us but i mm. think that is probably the most plausible option for the capital where their oh, only ex- exposure to war has been through the hunger games for 75 years wow so that's how they think of all war in terms of games and traps and things. Mm. That's pretty much been their only real exposure to military conflict. That's the only way they've thought about it. Wow. Is in the gladiatorial arena, in the Colosseum. I didn't really understand how they were able to booby trap the entire city so quickly. That also confused me. And how can you booby trap an entire city, like every street of every city, of, of the entire city? 
and just have tell everybody to stay home for a while? They didn't tell them to stay home. They evacuated them into the inner part of the city. And right. then eventually... So what it seemed to me was that there may have been booby traps in place, but they were kind of on mute, so to speak. And as people mm. were evacuated inwards, they were then activated, potentially? I'm not sure. So that answers another one of my questions, which was, what was their plan for when they had to deal with District 13 eventually? And that was their plan. Maybe uh, 75 years worth of planning for that. <laughs> I guess. Because District 13 didn't actually do anything for 75 years. They just kind mm. of existed. They were like, that threat that you kind of vaguely know is there, but you can forget about it for a really long time. I mean, because for a while, their only real goal was to not die. Yeah. To figure out how to be a completely subsistence existing group that then was able to grow into enough of a society that they could spearhead a rebellion. Yeah, and there's probably been a whole bunch of presidents, even in the last few decades, of judging by the, the poisoning happenings. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you, it's hard to maintain the focus on that. Scariness. Now that the rebellion is in full swing, all bets are off. This is full-on full, full on war going on. And even if you're not part of the rebellion, it gets very dangerous for any person, whether you're in the districts or in the capital. I feel like it's almost more dangerous if you're with neither the rebellion nor the capital. Because you think about when they attack the nut in District 2. Mm -hmm. And the civilians, who are not terribly with the capital, but were also not with the rebellion inside the nut. The nut being the uh, mountain fortress. Half of the rebels were willing to just destroy all the civilians in there. Yeah. It's almost safer to be with an extreme than to be in the center. Yeah, and so we see the terror of a revolution and how bloody that can be, how much uh, waste and hate. This is not a clean war. <laughs> this is very, the, the amount of collateral damage by both sides. And, and of course, one of the major plot points is the re rebellion coming up with a sort of attack bomb system specifically designed to lure in first aid people before it goes off. Not prim, not yet. <laughs> Too soon. It's pretty brutal, yeah. Not in your fanfic. She makes it out. <laughs> yeah, she was hiding under something. It's fine. She's okay. And Katniss, I mean, Katniss makes it out of... I think I counted something like four times. Katniss wakes up in a hospital. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and of course, in the two movies. I mean, hospitals aren't even safe in District 8. That's, That's true. Point. Yeah, that was really grim. It's the, the sort of total war aspect, right? Where it's, even if you're not a combatant, if you're providing any kind of services to people on either side, then you're a fair game. I think almost the scariest part of Mockingjay for me is seeing people you care about and love transform in the midst of war. Wow. Um. Mm. Because, so, the people that, like, stick out the most for me come at this from different ways, but it's Gail and Peta. Um, right, right. Gail gets so 
involved in the war effort that he completely kind of loses track of the bigger context and ultimately is responsible for the method of attack that leads to Prim's death. And then you have Peta, where through no fault of his own, but rather the machinations of the capital and the machinations of snow and terrifying fear programming, suddenly becomes a weapon against Katniss. Yeah, that's one of the most terrifying parts for sure, yeah. is to look in his eyes and see that it's not he's not there. It's He's trapped in this little world of fear and hate yeah. that has been created by the capital, has been imprinted mm. with it. I can't imagine the horror that Katniss must feel as like her lover is finally rescued from the capital and he wakes up and tries to strangle her to death. Yep, almost <laughs> succeeds too. Yeah, yeah. It's so awful. And it's right. It's two different ways that a war will twist people and mess them up. And something that, yeah, the characters from Star Wars never deal with. They're just like, yay, we won. One other little scariness bit that I had is I can't imagine the idea of walking through city streets not knowing what's going to pop out at you and try and kill you. Mm hmm. In the Hunger Games, as a tribute, there's some aspect of that, but... But you're in an arena. Like, yeah. that's what you're expecting. When you're walking through a city street, even if you know what's happening, it's just out of context. Yeah, so it looks ordinary, and then all of a sudden, machine guns pop out and just obliterate everything. Or, or the creepy black oil that fills up. Or the mutations in the sewers, which were just terrifying in and of themselves. So scary. Eyeless evil eating creatures the humanoid too they remind me of that like creepy guy with the eyes on his hands from uh pan's labyrinth oh yeah but, oh, yeah. but like yeah, yeah. also mermaid like it was it was special <laughs> yeah they were really scary i was covering my eyes in the movie theater for sure like actually for the whole 10 minutes before they appeared <laughs> i well. was definitely just like all right when are they when are they showing up? I know they're showing up. I know they're showing up. God, yeah. it was almost like better once they actually showed up. Yes, but not much better. They did about four or five false, like, I'm going to go and look. No, it's fine. Yep, there's nothing there. <laughs> they did that about four ah. times, so then they finally actually... Meanwhile, I'm hiding <laughs> under the seat. <laughs> How would they do? I am a... Game maker from the capital, and <laughs> I had all these amazing, devious, intricate plans for things that I was going to propose to use in the next Hunger Games. We had all sorts of you know animals that would come in and mess with people's minds. We had you know some more acid smoke or you know little spikes that chop up from the ground. I had all these great ideas, but it turns out none of them work in the context of the actually the capital taking out soldiers who are coming in. So yeah, I, I mean, flamethrowers and machine guns are fine. I mean, they're effective. Sure, I guess. But what's the what's the point, really? You got some cool mutts and sewers. Yeah, the sewer things, but I mean, that was even like a last minute thing. You know, I was going like, we could, you know, send some people down to the sewer. That would be a cool visual interest thing. And then people were like, no, no, there's... This is not about visual interest. We have to actually kill a whole bunch of people. I'm like, oh, fine. <laughs> it's tough. Like, it lacks the finesse of individual 
murders exactly. in the arena. The baboons aren't going to be very good against a whole bunch of soldiers that have guns. It's not going to be a very effective trap. So it's very, very disappointing, the whole thing. Your life and is And then so I hard. died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then you're and, right up against the wall as soon as the capital's taken. Or I just died in the, like, giant crush of people that were trying to get into the thing and then got firebombed. Mm-hmm. So rush job, not your speciality. Yeah, it's like, fine. Yeah, yeah. We'll just do the Hunger Games and we'll just have machine guns everywhere. You could have just called Aperture Science and get a bunch of turrets. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a plus. I am Lieutenant Jackson. I am the commander of the unit that Katniss is in when they go towards the capital. I was born underground and raised in District 13. This is all I've known, this military life. I've trained, I rose to the top of my class, and everything was very clear. We were t always taught every single history lesson that we would rise again and take back the capital. Somehow it started to seem abstract, but as we watched these revolutions start all around the districts, it became very real. This is my time. And it was a very important, very exciting mission, even though it was just propaganda, to take Katniss towards the capital. But everything was still sharp in my mind. Everything was still clear. And then partway through, it became less clear. Partway through, uh, Boggs, the other commander, put Katniss in charge of the maps when he died. All of a sudden, I had to make this choice whether to go with Katniss or to go with President Coyne. President Coyne, who had been my fearless leader for decades and was about to lead us to revolution. And all of a sudden, here's this you know, 22-year-old kid, no military training, doesn't know my culture, but she's a hero. Do I follow this new hope that is confusing everything? And is President Coyne really the good guy? What does the future hold? All of a sudden, it's all fuzzy. In the end, I do make my choice. I do choose to believe Katniss and go break my orders and sacrifice my life to let her get to the president, but not after having my entire worldview, my militaristic worldview shattered. That's heavy. Yeah. So I am Tigris. Ah. I am a former stylist for tributes that has been actually told by Snow that I was too altered and no longer attractive enough to be a stylist for the games. Mm -hmm. And now I sort of provide a safe house for the resistance and offer shelter to Pollux, Katniss, Peta, and Gale. They uh, seem to know each other earlier, her and Cresta. Yeah. Cressida and her or I, how should I still be referring to myself in the first person? This is odd. Go for it. Um, it feels you silly. And you and Cressida. So Cressida Come on, and I you know you want to. Fine. Uh, Cressida and I seem to have some form of like previous interactions through the network of revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe a working relationship too. Or potentially, more. like as I was a stylist and Cressida was a filmmaker, it is not at all unlikely that we may have crossed paths. After Cinna, I, like, the role of stylist was surely, like, much more politicized and under much higher scrutiny. 
because I mean, you are shaping how each tribute appears for the games for an audience that is broadcast not just to the capital but to all of the districts you have the ability to make your tribute into a hero mm-hmm. and, and before the all the stuff that's happened with the revolution and district 13 and stuff it was sort of the main source of kind of pro district propaganda i guess in a certain way yeah i mean it was it was much different than the propos by District 13, but it was, like, the presentation of each district was very much kind of a little bit of pro-district propaganda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Sina sort of pushed over the line into glorifying District 12 a little bit. Both glorifying and turning that glorification into resistance. Exactly. So, Tigris... Like, your society seems to be so wild and, and hedonistic and open to different forms of personal expression. Basically, like, queerness seems to be something that is not part of any of the other districts. And yet you found the line. You found that it's all an illusion. Yeah, that, that, that there's a way to push too far. When you have altered yourself to no longer look entirely human, you're no longer accepted as attractive enough to appear on television for the Yeah, games. ultimately you need the approval of an old white man with a beard. Yup. <laughs> Death to the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you were going to get me on a podcast and I wouldn't say death to the patriarchy? <laughs> Alright, shut it down. Shut it down. No. <laughs> I we will, gotta cut I, her mic. I will hide squad 451 in my basement. <laughs> While Excellent. I sell for underwear, because, you Excellent. know, that's my life. Hope for the future. How do we know that whoever... Okay, who took the place of Coin when she killed Coin? It was that general whose name I'm blanking on. Mm -hmm. From District 8. Yes. Who was both very rational and reasonable and, like... I don't think ever aspired to political office. So Katniss was basically just throwing things up in the air. Like she had no control over who would take power next. No. Right. But she, she just knew was... it should be Coin. But given that no one other than Coin and Plutarch Heavensby had like aspirations to power, like she's automatically kind of throwing someone who wasn't looking to gain power at the position. Mm. Of course, that transition between, you know, revolution and actual stable government is always extremely fraught. I mean, you can look at the many, many, many times it's failed, even recently. Mm -hmm. um, like the Arab summer. Oh, yeah. I mean, you had a revolution. It was obviously not quite as dramatic as this, uh, but you had a revolution. You had the attempt to seek democracy and you had it fail, which had nothing to do with any cultural aspects. It just had to do with the fact that it's really hard to reestablish a government after a revolution. After a dictatorship, I mean... Yeah, after a dictatorship and a subsequent revolution. Yeah, and the whole society is set up as a dictatorship. So, you know, it's very easy for someone to just step into that role, but very hard to reconfigure it. Yeah. I mean, you're dealing with a population that doesn't know what not being a dictatorship is. 
Do they even know about democracy in the world of Pan Am? It's unclear. Are the districts a democratic thing? We don't we don't really know how the leaders of the districts are elected or put into power. I have a feeling that at least under Snow, they were at best puppet elections. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that the elections in the districts had nothing to do with any presidential elections in the capital, all of which were probably rigged anyway. I mean, I can imagine that, you know, people sort of start recovering in the capital and starting to go back to normal life and sort of going, wait, what, what you mean? There isn't going to be a Hunger Games this year, but, oh, <laughs> hmm. Well, I mean, like, Coin wanted to reinstitute the Hunger Games. That was yeah. one of the things that led Katniss that, to yeah. ultimately decide to shoot her. That was definitely a misstep on her part to yeah, holy bring, cow. bring together all the people who had previously been horribly traumatized by the Hunger Games and propose more Hunger Games. <laughs> what I thought was interesting was how at least how more than half of them voted to reinstitute the Hunger Games. Some of them for strategic reasons, but others just because... Fuck those people. Well, fuck those people and the exposure and trauma of that violence kind of just made them want to institute more of it against their oppressors. The plan was it's like, we're going to do a Hunger Games and get a bunch of kids from the capital to do it. I was hoping it was going to be, we're going to do a Hunger Games, but it's just going to be snow. We're just gonna put him. <laughs> we're just gonna put him in a in a the greatest hits of all the arenas in yeah, the last seventy five years. Arena, and then we just mess with him for like three days. I mean, but that would be a very short Hunger Games because we're dealing with a man that's already been substantially affected by him poisoning himself. Yeah, yeah. And is an old fat man. Yeah, it's not so immediately obvious that that President Coin is evil. Then if she's talking about taking the children and putting them in the arena. Like, nobody's pro-killing children. Pretty much once you say you're pro-killing children, it's very apparent that you're evil. It's true. Yeah. We're going to put a bunch of children and puppies into this. And Not the Watch puppies. them kill each other. <laughs> okay, no puppies. <laughs> Let's yeah. take another vote. Yeah, you do the, the false, <laughs> false, uh, whatever, medium. And then, of course, in terms of uh, hope for the future, we do actually get a real... 20, I think it's 20 years later or a bunch of time later epilogue with Katniss and Peeta having somewhat recovered from their various traumas, which is nice. Yeah. Babies fix everything is the message. We don't have a sense on whether the society has substantially recovered. Right. Right. Which is very true to the book because basically at the end of Mockingjay, Katniss is like, I'm out. Yeah. I don't care. All I'm going to do is to basically tend to mine Peeta's trauma for the rest of our lives. And yeah. that seems very believable. It's pretty much a full-time I mean, like, job. That's pretty, yeah, that, that's a pretty reasonable response is, all right, I've put up with your shit for too goddamn long. I'm going to go do me. <laughs> yeah, you do you, Katniss. And the idea that Katniss... You earned it. Take a spa day. Not only does she have no desire to be, you know, in charge or any kind of uh, uh, prominent position, but... She knows that she would be, you know, bad at it. She, it's nothing that it's not something that she wants, or, uh, and if she stays around, it might be kind of forced on her, in some ways, the same way as being the Mockingjay was forced upon her. Yeah, I agree that it would likely be forced upon her, and I agree that she does not want it. But I, I somewhat debate the point of whether she would not be good at it, 
I feel like lots of people have told her she wouldn't be good at it because they want to stick her just in the role of figurehead with no actual power. Hmm. She's got integrity, but I don't think she has any political skills. But the thing is, she's never actually been in a political position. She managed to negotiate with Coin quite well. That's true. That's true. Yeah. It doesn't matter because no way would she be interested in diving into that. Yeah, no, no. She wants to go, like, <laughs> hang out in the countryside with PETA and their children, and that's awesome for her. They're, yeah. The they'll, children will have an interesting time, I think, but uh, it's something positive anyway. Yeah. Squad 451, you're my unit. Lieutenant Jackson is my second in command. Each one of you is elite in some form of combat, but we are a non-combat unit, so we'll be following days behind the frontline troops. You're to be the on-screen faces of the invasion, the Star Squad. It's been decided that you're most effective when seen by the masses. So we're not gonna fight. You do whatever you're ordered to do, soldier. It's not your job to ask questions. Yes, sir. Even though we'll be working on abandoned streets miles behind the front lines, I guarantee you, wherever they put us, it will not be safe. This is a war zone. It is likely that we'll encounter both active pods and peacekeepers. You're considered high-value targets to the capital. Our unit has been given a hollow, a database that contains a detailed map of the capital and a list of every known pod. These pods can trigger anything from bombs to traps to mutts. Whatever they contain, they are meant to kill you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 76 Hunger Games. So we reached the end of the Hunger Games saga. I feel like you've been trying to recruit me for each of the Hunger Games podcasts. <laughs> and this was the first yeah. one where we were both mutually available. Yeah, it's awesome that it finally worked out. I'm so happy you came on the show, Abby. I am so glad that I got to come on. <laughs> you definitely brought your perspective. That was fantastic. Thank you. And I got to say death to the patriarchy, so you know. Exactly. <laughs> I wanted to bring up something that I meant to say in the intro, which is that these movies are basically, you could say that they're revolutionary chic that's been repackaged for mass entertainment. Like, there's... Mockingjay Smiley's for Facebook, for example, I saw there the other day. There are Mockingjay Smiley's? I now yes. need to go like go on Facebook <laughs> and send them everywhere. Cute cartoony Smiley's of all of the your beloved characters from Mockingjay, not just the Hunger Games, but Mockingjay specifically, the one with all the slaughter in it. I mean, well, more what, slaughter? What is the context for you to use like a President Snow Smiley? Well, go on and find. There's something with President Coin where it's like, yeah, you go, girl, or something like that. <laughs> anyway, but it's all, it's this big prepackage. We talked last time about uh, a previous episode about a theme park that's opening up based on Hunger Games. So it's taking all this revolutionary imagery and, you know, making it very sellable. I'm actually it, really not okay with that. <laughs> it does like, seem like something the Capitol would do, doesn't it? Yes, it very much does. <laughs> Because, like, I can understand the whole Harry Potter theme park, but there is actually nothing terribly fun about the Hunger Games world. <laughs> it's all pretty goddamn depressing. Yeah, the theme park is just kids in the Hunger Games, but they give them, like, Nerf bow and arrows and stuff. Nerf guns. They run around. It burns off some energy. <laughs> we, we put their faces in the sky. I could see that being, like, fun in a terrifying adult way. <laughs> but, like, I don't see basing a theme park around that. Okay, but I wanted to say, it, 
attempting to dismiss it, but the imagery of the Hunger Games has actually turned out to be powerful in some real-world ways. I ran across this article uh, about Thailand. The police detained three students Thursday at the opening of the latest Hunger Games movie in Thailand, where opponents of May's military coup have adopted the film's three-finger salute as a sign of defiance. Wow. I had actually heard about that previously, about uh, people using the three-finger salute as a sign of defiance in real-world situations. Unfortunately, you have to be a little bit careful. If people don't see the first part of it with the, like, you put the fingers to your mouth and then go up, it does kind of look like the Nazi salute. <laughs> be a little careful about that. The angle is important. Yeah, the angle is very important. <laughs> but it shows you that this story does have a power to make a little bit of a difference. Otherwise, the government wouldn't be so scared of it. Yeah. They're saying, this is the capital. They're taking charge. When you actually have a very relatable, very popular fictional revolution and you can use it to motivate people that's a very powerful thing yeah i think it's it could be positive and it's when you know the the quote-unquote insurgents are the heroes of the whole thing right yeah and so they've they've actually banned that gesture throughout thailand so it shows you that art can be powerful in that way which is also kind of a theme of of the hunger games itself well this is a loading ready run podcast as we'd like to remind you yeah, and uh, like everything we do on Loading Ready Run, it is uh, supported by our Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun. And the intro was written by Bradley Rains, and all the interstitial segments are by Kiara Kant. And if you liked uh, the show, you can follow us or subscribe on iTunes or check it out on YouTube and leave us some comments or leave comments on our forum at loadingreadyrun.com slash forum. Thank you uh, very much for listening. And thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Yeah, it's great. Do you want to say the uh, signature sign-off, which starts up, may the odds? May the odds be ever in your favor. Excellent. I'm saluting right now. Well, that wasn't good. I can't whistle either. Uh, none of us <laughs> right. can whistle. Well. <laughs> All right. We'll pretend that didn't happen. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Right. Thank you. Bye. Talk to you later. Ci vediamo. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>